great episode of the Sacred Stew. I'm your host, James, and this is my co-host, Anthony. And this week on this episode, I want to tackle um, the conversation that I've mentioned a few times in the last couple episodes. Uh, is the topic of bloat, uh, ritual in general. Uh, but before we get to that, um, I want to hear what uh, Anthony's up to, what you've been doing over the past week, and uh, give updates and stuff for all of our listeners of everything we've been doing. So what's going on in Anthony's world? Uh, well, I got a new job, but still pretty much just uh, working and coming home for the most part. We just went up to Viking Fest in Yelm. That was that was super fun. They had a couple Forged in Fire winner winners uh, selling their goods. I think there was like one runner up. They had a whole lot of they had a couple tents of like clothes, like medieval style clothing for the cosplayers. Which there's a part of me that's super into that, so that was cool. Uh, so a funny story, a guy was trying to, uh, sell some brooms, like some witch aesthetic brooms. And he's like, the weave lasts a lifetime here. Let's give an example, pull on it. I pull on it and the thing starts to come apart. The look on his face was amazing. (laughs) He's like, oh man, you're strong. (laughs) Yeah. He said he's never had that happen before. So that's funny. <laughs> but uh and then they did uh the fight games where you know guys in medieval style armor were doing like a round robin tournament or something it was i'm not sure exactly sure what the name of the competition style was but it that was that was super fun i don't know what the uh fighting style is called either um i do know that he said the period was, was like 12th century so that was pretty cool. Not necessarily Viking per se, but the, I mean, just the aesthetics and the uh, fights themselves were, were really intense. Uh, and they used real swords and real armor. Um, I, 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 I love going to the Viking Fest. It's, there's a lot of energy there. I'm not speaking ill of the Highlander Festival, but I was definitely more, uh, I had a better time at Viking Fest. Well, and that's, you know, kind of the contrast of uh, the events is you you are entering like a, a, a role playing arena with the Viking Fest where these are people that this is ha- actually how they live their lives on a day to day basis, which can appreciate and um, give kudos to because uh, they're not just weekend warriors. These people actually live their life like that. Uh, which is pretty cool um whereas the highlander fest is more of the scottish traditional highlander fest with um, the dancing competitions it's more cultural per se more of a um passive way of enjoying uh your people and your culture and who you're from you know it's it was very different types of energy so the town that the highlander festival was in uh, was founded by scots um and it's still very much uh, a Scottish town. Uh, almost everything here is wrapped around some type of uh, family line that links back to Scotland and them coming here in the late 1800s and settling the area. That's super cool. So what about you? What's been up with you? 
probably because you working a lot and uh, doing the festivals. As you know, we were there. The the real fun actually at the Viking Fest happened when it closed, and then you know all the people afterwards. We uh, they had a fountain of mead there. Literally, you could take just blow your urine out of the fountain of mead. It's a really big event um, for that little small region that it's in, and uh, the people there are are really fun. Uh, there, I don't think uh, anybody there, uh, there was no bad incidents that transpired whatsoever in, during the whole event. But later that night, we ended up telling stories and, and they had, as you know, the scald there that was telling the stories from uh, Snorri's Edda's. And he did a pretty decent job. Their, their, of their group uh, had invited me to uh, tell a story. Um, and I went in and I started telling the story of uh, Rig and the Rig Stula, which I thought was an appropriate story for for the people that were there because they're not necessarily uh, practicing the old faith, although they obviously have a love for that culture and, and that environment. So it was kind of more of a, a reaffirming message just to people who may, may not even be aware of the old faith and kind of telling them the old story that of where they came from and uh, the gifts that were given to us by the gods. Yeah, I got to work on remembering the uh, the lay of the lay of wise. That's my favorite one. I don't know what it is about it, but that's 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 one of my favorite ones. Why? Honestly, I think a big part of it is most people would assume Thor's just a big vulgar dummy. And he actually outsmarts the dwarf that's trying to swipe his daughter. So he doesn't have to renege on the deal. He just gets the uh, the dwarf to keep talking until the sun comes up and turns him to stone. So the dwarf is stone. He can't marry the daughter because he's stone. Okay. I think out of all of my favorite stories, the Rigstula is the is my most favorite. Just so it and I don't know. I'm really attached to it. But I do know a lot of uh, stories. Uh, You've heard a few of them, um, but out of all of them, the Rigsdula, hands down, to me, is the very best. Yeah. I would agree it's, it's one of the most important ones, if so, not the oh, most important. So, um, moving on a little bit from this, actually, I don't know if any pings aren't questions and stuff, but I, I had a couple people uh, reach out to me about some questions. And so I just wanted to take a couple minutes here and uh, circle to some of the the conversations that we had in the last couple episodes and deal with a couple points that people raise um if you're willing to entertain that of course so i had somebody reach out to me and essentially his question he listened to the episode last week about and rites of passage and he was wondering you know we do um as an individual that was raised with no rites of passage and uh, has no children or family and 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 all of that and he, he he's like you know what can i do can i still do rites of passage is there things that i can still you know learn and yes our whole life is is just rites of passage that happen uh, unconsciously mostly you know our when we're born that's a rite of passage when we marry a woman that's a rite of passage when we hunt and kill something, even if it wasn't done, you know, in the setting of a tribe or a specific clan or kindred or something like that. I mean, these things are still rites of passage. But the most important thing that you can do is, number one, find a wife. 
find a woman to have a family with and teach your children these skills. And when you teach them these skills, layer it with the knowledge of our faith, layer it with the Lord, layer it with layer it with our life. Explain things to them, tell your children stories. If you don't have children and you are not married, the best thing that you can do is actually uh, find an organization where you can contribute your knowledge and skills to children uh, to teach them. Because there's just so many people that aren't doing anything, you know. They like listening to videos on YouTube or TV or they like to read lots of books, but they're not actually applying themselves. And that's what we really need is just people out there applying themselves uh, and, and teaching the children in a way that they grow up with these skills and this knowledge. Um, not to be a conspiracy theorist, and I know that, Anthony, you're still waiting for that episode when we get into the woo and all of that. But I'm a, I'm a firm believer that all of these commodities that we have in our life, uh, the lights and the TVs and the cars and things like this, I'm a firm believer that uh, there may come a day that when we do not have these amenities to rely upon and people always fantasize in their brain that they'll be the, the, the person out there that survives it all and, and all of that. But so many people think that food comes from grocery stores, you know, and that's a common problem in our society is they're not in touch with nature. They don't know how to work within nature. Um, and, and this is the type of skills and knowledge set that we need to pass down, not just our own knowledge of our faith, but real practical living skills not made up ones in these universe that they call the internet but ones that you can actually do with your hands ones that you can actually feel with your fingertips and smell with your nose so you're saying my mad assassin's creed skills are of no value <laughs> it depends on what uh, version you're playing you're playing valhalla i just i just beat all of valhalla yes nice. i was not entirely disappointed nice. like there were there were there's a lot of things that they didn't get right. I'm not going to try to say it's accurate, but it was a very interesting story. I mean, it had its little woke elements laced here and there. I'm expecting that with anything, but I thought it was a good story that wasn't entirely. I'm not going to say it was historically ac accurate, but your character and the interaction you have would have been very accurate cultural things. I'm pretty sure the game set in like 900, 1,000 CE. Those who don't know, I'm not a very big gaming person. I used to be when I was younger. I'm a little bit older with some gray hairs in my beard now, so I don't play it very often. And uh, why we are on this subject, I'll mention, because part of the reason why I didn't continue, continue playing games was I live in the forest. And where I live, there is only one internet option, and that is satellite internet. And so our internet connection is a little bit, uh, it's not very good at all, as you know, Anthony. And so people may wonder, like, I had my son comment on the episode last week, and he was like, man, that really sounds like your voice is dragging in that recording. And uh, it does. 
And a lot of that's just the bad internet connection that I have, but this is my means of communicating for where I live. So for those of you that have bared the drags and the skips and the messages and conversations that we have, uh, it is my lack of uh, good internet where I live. So, hey, but Anthony, on that question that I answered for our listener, uh, did you have anything you'd add to that? I mean, just kind of slightly touching on what what uh, you had said along the same vein. Um, I think it's really easy to overcomplicate rites of passage. Uh, I mean, they're absolutely important, but 99% of those rites were all about boys and girls learning the skills they need to take care of themselves and the tribe uh, bettering themselves. So, I mean, to give like a super mundane example, if you go out and you take the time and study and learn a new skill that allows you to make more money or hold a higher position in whatever company you work for or, you know, anything that elevates you, the act of doing that is a rite of passage in a very mundane way. And just because it's mundane doesn't mean it's less impactful because we live in this physical world as much as, as much as the spiritual, we are tied to both. So, you know, doing something to better yourself is, is in line with a rite of passage. Very well said, Anthony. Did you have anybody reach out with comments or questions for you? Uh, no, my, my contact information is not, we don't really have it listed at this point. Uh, I mean, I pay, I try to pay attention to the YouTube comments, but we don't get very many on there. If I, and so no, me personally, and most of the people that would have know the both of us. So they're probably going to ask you, <laughs> you're the big brain guy. I'm the bring it back down to level guy. <laughs> what I'm waiting for are the questions. A, uh, so I asked James and he said this. Oh, well, James meant this. <laughs> You're the translator. Yeah. So well, that's what we're saying. I also wanted to bring up uh, the question that Noah had asked. And this is, he, he brought this question up from two episodes ago where, in, where I mentioned Lothar and Loki possibly being the same being and uh in in season one i go a little bit pretty in depth with uh a version of the of the story of odin and his relationship with mimir and lother and him becoming jealous of odin and anyways noah asked uh, a really good question and he says you know the idea that lother is cert is you know, there's a pretty good amount of people that say that, you know, even among scholars. Um, but it's hard for him to understand the relationship with Loki necessarily because of uh, Lothar being a progenitor of certain things and certain beings, which is a really interesting point. So I wanted to touch on that a little bit because... I can see how that could easily be confused with, with the family tree that's 
ascribed to Lothar um, and really kind of the lack of the family tree of Loki. But the thing is, is that Lothar's name in the Poetic Edda is only mentioned twice. And it's mentioned once in the uh, creation of Ask and Imla. First time that it's mentioned in the Poetic Edda, it's not actually stated that he's Odin's brother. Brother, It's not until Snorri's uh, version of events where he names Avili and Ve, and, and he just calls them the brothers of Odin and doesn't really give a distinguishing factor there. Uh, Lothar is mentioned in the skaldic poetry, but it's mentioned in a way that is used as a kenning, as a companion of Odin. So I feel as if there is not actually enough information ascribed to that name Lothar to attribute a certain uh, family tree to him. And there's an, another interesting thing with the uh, skaldic po poetry in the Rima Lokror. There is a reference where the name Lothar is used in reference as a kinning for uh, Loki. Now, that was written before, or excuse me, after Snorri's time. But here's the thing, is either Snorri, he never addresses this issue. So the person that composed that information either had to have been taking something that was common knowledge and utilizing it, and, and Snorri did not because he just assumed it was common knowledge that Lothar and Loki were the same. At least that's how the theory goes. Um, so I believe that Lothar is actually the son of Mimir, and he, that would make him a blood brother to Odin. And the most sacred of relationships that we know of from tradition is that between an uncle and a nephew. And Odin was the nephew of Mimir. And Mimir took him as essentially the uh, elevated pupil that he was. And Lothar, being the son of Mimir, becomes jealous of this and begins sabotaging things that we learn about. And we see when Loki enters the story by name that he is essentially, he does good, but he still sabotages things. And Lothar's never mentioned again. So I believe that the trial of Loki is essentially the trial of Lothar when he is essentially bound until Ragnarok, which is a very similar fate to what Surt has. And most people do think that Lothar is Surt. So the connections there for me are, are, are pretty obvious, at least in my mind. But uh, I hope that answers your question, Noah, and any, any other person out there that uh, was questioning, you know, where this theory is, what this theory is based off of. Um, I'm not the person that actually came up with that theory. Uh, I, I believe that the per 
first person that proposed that theory was Ursula Drank. Uh, he, I think he was the very first one. And then also Dumazel believed that same theory. Uh, and then more recently, uh, Halkor Thorgerson uh, proposes the exact same thing. So this isn't a theory that I invented. It's something that's been around for quite some time. Uh, and I believe the argument for it is really strong. Uh, you don't have to necessarily believe it. Um, but when you look at the, the chronology of events that happened from creation until Ragnarok, it, it, it fits very nicely in there. Yeah, and like all I know is the the conversations that we've had about it. I haven't read the the scholars that have proposed it, but on a basic level, to me, it just makes more sense with Mimir being Odin's uncle and Lodor or Loki being the son of Mimir and them being blood brothers that way makes significantly more sense than. Odin doing a blood brother ritual with a Jotun that there's always been tensions with. You know, like peace between the Aesir and the Jotuns was always extremely fragile at at best. You know, so there being an actual blood relation makes significantly more sense than a random ritual or a, uh, such a holy ritual with a random Jotun. So, Noah, and for those listening, that is the connection there. The name Lothar is only used a couple times, and um, there is no actual family tree that we can trace back to definitively say otherwise. The other theory that he is not Loki, uh, it is guesswork on both sides, really, but what I would suggest is look at the story and the pattern of the story and see how it fits together. You know, it was very common fashion whenever somebody was banished for there to be name taboos. And I believe that's exactly what happened after the trial uh, of what we call Loki. Uh, um, that was actually the trial of Lothar and there was a name taboo and thus his, his lips were sewn shut, you know? So, that's how I believe everything happened. Well, it's one of the better sounding speculations that I've heard in a while. And I really hate to put, you know, um, UPG into things, but it does fit in our faith, you know, as long as it fits within tradition. And does this change uh, our relationship to Odin? Whether Loki and Lodor are the same being or not, it does not fundamentally change uh, the characters, what they did, and them rising against the gods. So I'm ready to tackle the conversation on bloat. What is bloat? Why do we do it? What is it for? What are the mechanics of it? And is it something that we should do? Is it something that we even need to do? What is your answer to all of these, Anthony? Well, my answer is we need both passive and active uh, worship and practice. You know a little bit more on the source history for the impl- importance of bloat. 
But yeah, I mean, any ethnic culture had rituals they did for their gods and goddesses. And it enabled a reciprocal relationship. We made them stronger. They made us stronger. And so, yes, absolutely. We, we need to do bloats. Bloat meaning sacrifice, as I understand it. Yes, we sacrifice to our gods. That's a no-brainer. So I guess the best place to start, what is bloat? How would you describe bloat, Anthony? The basics that I would describe it is when a person, or more preferably, a group of people come together and give an offering to the to to the gods in return for protection and luck in the coming seasons or you know coming times very good explanation of it actually this out of the iphone runer book because i think this describes it probably the best we perform bloat as a sacred exchange between owned and other. Understanding this is pivotal to our spirituality. As Reverend asked for power, namely the Nornir, the gods and goddesses, and the Alfar, we perform bloat or ritual sacrifices as physical manifestations of our worship. These rituals range from the consecration and offering of an animal before boiling the meat and giving thanks during the feast, to a libation over and into the sacred elements of earth, air, fire, or water. In this holy act, we participate in the sacred exchange between our gifts of spirit, or owned, given to us by Odin, and our soul, the older, given to us by Honer. In the act of communicating with the higher powers, the transmission of our will is heard by the gods. As we activate our odor through the inspiration of our own, thus bridging the gap between us and the divine. I think that's a very good explanation of what bloat is. But I don't think it necessarily explains why we do bloat to reestablish that connection. Um, before we jump into that part, though, would you add anything to that definition there? Me personally, no. I feel like that says more eloquently what I said, basically. I thought you said it very well, though, too. But it essentially well, said the you. same thing. Why do we do bloat? This goes back to the lore. And we talked about in the first season how the lore is layered. It's layered with history. It's layered with rituals. It explains a lot in there. But you just have to read and understand what it's explaining. So the bloat is a cosmological play of the process of creation. Odin was the very first Godi, and he led the sacrifice of Ymir. And then Nord was the, the next Godi. And then Freyr was given that charge. But understanding that doesn't explain exactly why we do that and why fur is given governance of that. But there's a story in the lore about having in Zvitdag. Zvitdag is explained to be a dragon in most renditions of the story. But I believe 
when the lore references dragons, a lot of times it's actually talking about the sacred bear. The grizzly bear or whatever bear of the region. And the reason why I say that is because almost every time it's describing bears in, in these stories, they're always in a cave with a treasure um, and they have magical powers and, and people go on these hunts essentially as a rite of passage. And this is an old tradition that dates back for as far as our folk memory goes. So I am going to start with the premise that Zvitdag is actually not in the form of a dragon, although it doesn't matter to the point of the story whether he's a dragon or a bear. But I'm going to stick to the point that he was in the manifestation of a bear. And Hadding, great warrior, goes hunting to go on his rites of passage. And he finds Zvitdag, this great beast. And he kills Zvitdag. And unbeknownst to him, Zvitdag is actually Freya's husband, Oder. Freya hears about the death of her husband and that a man had did this. Now remember, after the creation of Askin Embla, man just lived with little to no concern for the gods or goddesses or they took not much notice of us as well sometimes they did sometimes they did not and but when Hadding kills the husband of Freya the gods take notice for now a man has committed deicide that act of killing a god and, and Freya becomes so outraged at the death that she essentially curses Hadding in the people by saying that may the winds and all the weathers and all the forces of nature be against us and that no aid will come unless we bloat to them. So Hadding, feeling very proud, goes on, leaves the hunt. Here's the curse of the goddess is out to sea and a mighty storm happens all aboard the ship die in that storm and Hadding barely clings onto wood and floats safely to a village off of land and at this village he is taken in as a traveler and given food and rest and then the home is destroyed that he stays in but he survives. As the story goes on, everywhere the Hadding goes, destruction happens. And he goes to the gods and he asks the gods, you know, how he can write this. And they tell him he needs to form to restore the balance of nature for the protection of the gods against the forces of nature that would harm us. Now this gets very theologically deep because now we begin talking about Erlog and we begin talking about uh, fate and destiny and how these things work, which we've talked about a little bit in past episodes. But I wanna stay really narrowly focused on the aspect of, of bloat itself. Quick questions on, on that before we move forward. Would we differentiate this or keep this from being looked at 
as our version of uh, the first sin that the Christians always talk about. Because to people that don't completely understand the dynamic of how it works, it had in killing uh, Swipdag and then Freya cursing us could be seen as a similar metaphor to Adam and Eve eating from the tree of knowledge in the Abrahamic faith and thus damning us to sinners for all of eternity. As far as like the original sin concept, essentially in Midgard, what we would know as our universe, uh, beings travel all through. And there's laws that were established that all must live by. And we can look at our Germanic law codes that we know of because they survived over time. They were recorded and, and they still are around today. And a lot of our laws that we see in European countries today, although based off the Latin versions of these laws, uh, a lot of them incorporate a lot of the Germanic laws into them. So we have always had a concept of uh, sin. We touched about on this in season one, that sin itself, that word itself, derives from the Proto-Indo-European language. It's a Germanic word. It does not come from the Bible. So these are words that they use in the Bible because when they are trying to teach the Jewish faith to the European folk, they use obviously words in the language that they recognized and understood what the concepts were. Now, anytime a Germanic law that somebody was killed, whether it was maliciously or accidentally, the law always calls for some sort of uh, reconciling of that. And traditionally, there was like money that had to be paid, you know, for the death of a person depending on their status so this goes at the very heart of our law code just for our functioning and these are things that rig taught us because he took the law of the gods and he taught us those laws and told us this is how we need to do it so we can take those germanic laws and understand what is happening whenever uh, we see this act committed against the gods. It's the same. It's the same law code that's playing out here, and it's not necessarily that Freya herself is actually like, or the gods are doing harm to us, but rather they're removing their protection from us. And in order to restore the balance of our connection to the gods. We have to perform bloats. That's how it's done. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's not like. Does that answer that question? Yeah. So like what I got out of that is it, it isn't that in doing so we became lesser. It's that a deity was killed and something needed to happen to restore his influence in the universe so by us bloating we are doing our part to help restore the balance that was lost between the folk and our gods yes and 
that now I want to differentiate because a lot of people they still have these ideas or conceptions in their head of you know how they picture the gods and a lot of it is is because of modern tv and comic books and you know and just different ways of perceiving what the gods are and they really try to personalize the gods in a way that uh some people may feel like they have personal relationships with whatever god um and there may there may be i i would probably him and ha 99.9 percent of the time when somebody tells me that when it comes to the bloat in the offerings, in rituals, in veneration, there's different levels of it. So you have communal bloats, which is for the whole community. And these bloats, there's there's nine of them in the course of a year. And essentially, there's three festivals that happen at different points in the year. And at these three-day festivals, uh, a bloat is performed on each of these days. And these bloats are very specific for very specific types of protection that were essentially seeking the aid of the gods for to protect us from. And it mostly has to do with like misfortune and luck and, and things like that. Um, pestilence, uh, fertility, uh, all, all of those sorts of things. So we have that happening in the communal level. But then on a personal level, uh, we also can perform have certain rituals or rites that are very personal to us that we perform. And this may be to the gods. It may be to uh, other sorts of beings or entities. Uh, most often we see this happening with people's own ancestors and family. You know, a lot of homes, you know, that practice the old ways, they'll have uh, altar or a shrine set up with different family members on it to remember and commune with. Um, this is something really personal. Now, we can also still uh, call upon gods for offerings or bloats uh, in, on a personal level, too. I mean, there's many examples where people would, you know, call upon gods and make oaths to them at different th at different points in events or during battle and things like this but when i'm speaking of bloat in general uh i'm mostly referring to the communal bloats that we perform and that's mainly what i want to focus on as far as the mechanics of it how we do it does that make sense anthony yeah no uh makes perfect perfect sense and it kind of follows the same vein that we've touched on a time or two where on the communal level things are done very particular ways for very particular reason reasons but there is that room for on a one-on-one -on -one basis a slightly more personalized or upg approach would be more acceptable as far as what you so. do as far as what you do on a one-on-one -on -one base to commune there's more variance than what needs to happen at the communal level and a lot of that actually gets into uh, divination, um, which is, you know, reading symbols, knowing how to communicate with those things. Um, let's talk a little bit about the mechanics of the bloat. So as we mentioned already, though, uh, the bloat process, the actual ceremony that's happening 
Bitcoin is a representation of the cosmological process in the first sacrifice ever made, which was Odin sacrificing Ymir. And essentially, Ymir killed a Thumla, which was the nourishment, the food for all of the beings that lived at the time. And then when Ymir committed this act, Odin and his brothers kill Ymir and sacrifice him, lay him upon the Hurger, create uh, Midgard, and that's what we're replaying through these bloats. Now, there's different types of bloats, and there are some variances to the different types of bloats that you do, um, but understanding that you're still replaying that, that cosmological process is important to understand. And we don't sacrifice cats to Thor. We don't do that. That doesn't happen. <laughs> oh, that was a great episode, man. I love that yeah. story. Yeah. That just started listening to is going to get that reference. So okay. in okay, season so one, I'm, I believe it was like episode. It was episode two. Episode three. It was episode two. Okay. I told the joke about how my mom is uh, intellectually familiar with our ways, but there's a lot that she doesn't know. So it was a couple of days before I was coming to your Thor bloat. um, And I was telling my mom I had plans for the weekend and she was asking about it. And uh, I was like, well, we're, uh, we're doing a bloat for Thor. And she's like, well, what does bloat mean? I was like, well, bloat means to sacrifice. And she looked me dead at the eye, dead in the eye. And she's like, well, what are you sacrificing? And without missing a beat, keeping a straight face the whole time, I proceed to tell her about how we're sacrificing a cat. And I just picked it up from the Humane Society the day before. I was able to keep a straight face (laughs) until the look of horror came across her face. And then I proceeded to break down what it actually meant was it, it a lot of times in the modern age, it's meat or food or something of value offered up to the gods uh, to get a blessing in return. But yeah, I, this is like a year later and I still laugh about that. No, that's funny. That story is great. Yeah. So, so no, we are not sacrificing cats. That's a no-no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but that's a, a really good thing to actually talk about is, you know, uh, obviously you mentioned that we offer things of value and stuff. Um, traditionally, for the communal bloats, those nine important bloats of the year, uh, we would sacrifice very specific gods. Um, for example, with Frere's bloats, uh, the boar is the the number one offering to give to him. So that would be something that you would do. Uh, with Yule, Thor, the Thora bloat, the Thor bloat, the Yule buck, the goat, would be the sacrifice. Uh, Odin, there would be the mead sacrifice. Uh, then you also have uh, another bloat where essentially you're calling upon all of the Aesir and you would give them an ur or uh, what we would use today beef or, or a bull or a cow, pre- preferably a cow, would be the sacrifice. Um, so I don't think 
any community right now is at a level where they're sacrificing cows. So usually, you know, they will purchase uh, meat and that becomes that. And very often, a lot of the sacrifices are part of the mill for the community and the mill itself forms a nutritional basis of, of blessing to the folk. And that same mill is shared with the gods and given as an offering to them. So we're not just like killing whole animals and throwing them in fires or burying. You know the four ways to actually, um, the four things that we use uh, to sacrifice um, or to, to, to make the offering. I kind of hinted to it earlier with something I read. There was four very specific ways that we essentially dispose of the offering. So you had four. The way I always heard it is it was burn it, bog it, bury it, or burn it. And it would transmit it through through the air or, or the smoke. Bog it means to throw it into water or bury it means to put it in the earth. Like, so that's, that's the, those are the ones that, that's the way that I'd always heard it. The four was, is to burn it on fire, um, bury it in the earth, emerge it into the water. And bogging actually is, quite interesting because bogging was reserved for things that they were trying to hide. So people that committed certain types of crimes against the folk um, that were essentially shameful things, they would bog them in bogs that uh, was not actually like a public ceremony in most instances. Oh, but uh, the fourth way would be by hanging it in the air. So we have, for example, Odin is the hanging god. And so very often they would hang sacrifices in trees. So Odin would take the spirit of that sacrifice. And that was his realm of what he how he took his sacrifices. So like you can relate this to like modern day Christmas trees, for example, where like we have the tradition of hanging different em uh, uh, emblem or excuse me, different things on our Christmas trees uh, throughout the years, gingerbread, popcorn, candies, all sorts of stuff. That tradition actually dates back further than we can imagine. Um, of hanging those sacrifices to Odin in the tree, the Christmas tree being a representation of Yggdrasil. So this is just a tradition where we began at some point to bring the trees into our home, most likely because we had to hide this practice from the church. And we, instead of going to a grove where they would hang their sacrifices during Yule uh, in the trees, we began to do that with trees in our homes, um, hiding that practice for some for some reason. That is where I believe that tradition actually comes from. I also have an interesting theory about Yule too. An interesting theory on Yule? I mean, there's already people that know that Yule actually isn't during the solstice period. A lot of people follow a Wiccan calendar uh, and believe that the solstice is Yule, but it is not. Um, our ancestors, reckon the time by the moons so yule is actually a point 
after the solstice when a moon appears and then be then the yule period actually begins at that point and and uh the solstice period though with with that being said is still very important because what's actually transpiring before solstice uh and during solstice and into the new year before the actual yule starts is the great hunt and so in times of yore what they would do is they would hang their offerings during this period uh, to odin they would hang the offerings in trees and then he would collect those offerings during the great hunt and then after that great hunt period is over then shortly thereafter yule begins and you have your yule bloat and yeah that's how that's my theory anyways other people share that same theory but um, i know that most people don't understand or have probably not even come into contact with that information yet and it's because the wiccan calendar that was created 50 years ago uh what has just everybody has published that in all sorts of books and manuals and so now everybody has been practicing on a calendar that is not authentic to to the times or dates that we actually practice these traditions on to be fair in those early days it, there was a lot of um i don't want to say next necessary mixing but understandable mixings for the amount of information at the time uh to where it's understandable why they did that uh but we have enough information now that we have to leave the wiccans with their stuff and start more in-depthly building our own separate separate tradition yeah well i wouldn't even call it a separate tradition because there's actually a lot of a lot of people that are aware of the our community and here in the pacific northwest uh, we've adopted this uh, formally at the all thing this year but we've been doing it at least or starting to implement it over the last couple of years um and there's reasons why these dates in the way it works in the cycle it, it ties to the seasons in very specific periods when communication with the gods and the ancestors um is most apt to happen so this is why there's an importance on those dates so regarding the bloat and the mechanics of it it's important um I guess for us to kind of walk through uh, how a ritual should be performed. And when I say should, uh, I'm basing this off of information that we have that has survived in the Poetic Edda and uh, other hist historical documents that recorded these things. Um, a lot of people may hem and haw over the information I'm about to share, but a lot of them are just uh, they haven't connected the dots between the various pieces of information. So when we talk about reconstructing uh, how these rituals were actually performed, that has been done now. There is no one that can make an excuse anymore where they say that, uh, oh, well, the information, there's not that much and everything contradicts each other. Nobody knows. No, uh, the Noriana Society has completely reconstructed the ritual for the most part. Um, of course, there's still things to learn. 
Um, but we can tie every single piece of the ritual back to things uh, and, and explanations given in uh, the lore. So the formula, the bloat formula. So when you're going to a bloat area, um, where you're at is very important. The place uh, where you're going to perform this right. Uh, traditionally, before the Christian era, our folk would gather in groves in the in in the forests. Uh, it's not so easy to do that nowadays. Most people don't live in the forest like I do. Um, majority of people in Western civilization live in big urban centers. And so it can be hard to find places. Uh, over time, when Christianity began to uh, take over, uh, and when I mean take over, I mean actually having physical dominion over the people and enforcing its laws upon the folk, uh, they began forbidding us uh, from gathering in certain places, gathering at certain times. Uh, they began outlawing certain words and in, in symbols and signs. So when this is happening, they're actually going to some places and destroying our sacred groves and our sacred spaces like Uppsala. Um, so what we began doing is there was a compromise that was made where uh, in the urban centers, they could preserve the grove. And we would relate that today very similar to like city parks where there's trees and people go to relax and commune with nature a little bit that live in the cities. So they would have confined groves that were buried, uh, that were walled off from the rest of the city. And these would be the sacred areas. That was the first compromise. Then the second uh, events that began to happen when they started destroying these things, uh, we began actually placing these inside of hoffs, uh, the idols and the gods, inside of buildings to hide them from the Christian clergy. And that is how we began practicing and doing our rites into buildings. And, and a lot of people put a lot of stress on the hoffs and how they work and having them. Um, but I personally believe that we need to get back to the groves. Uh, that is where we're going to commune with the gods the most powerfully. Um, as we mentioned in previous episodes, Anthony, and you've been up here several times, uh, we have a grove up here, and I definitely feel connected to the gods in that sacred space that's been dedicated to them. Um, more so than when we've done rituals in my home. We've done rituals in my home with the community before, and it, it's still good. But it's, it's not the same connectivity feeling that you feel when you're in nature and you can feel nature's energy just abounding. Yeah, I definitely agree. Doing them outside is the bigger deal. But with that said, choosing the sacred area that you're going to do your ritual in is very important. And once you've chosen a spot, uh, you should hallow it. You should sanctify it. You should protect it. Uh, we do a hammerite where, you know, we call on... Thor and ask him to protect that space from any ill and banish any ill or harmful thing to us. Uh, we do that in the four directions uh, and then again above and below us. So that 
will create your sacred space. And there is a little bit of a formula to that. And I'm not going to get into nitty gritty details of the blood. I just want to work through the mechanics of it a little bit. So would you add anything to that Halloween? Any information or ideas or thoughts? No, I mean, just the only thing that I would say is try to find a place you can do it consistently because that repeated act in that one spot is going to build a stronger power and a connection during your bloats if you're able to do it in the same spot repeatedly, if it's possible. Very good. Yeah, very good. Good point there. I wouldn't go as far to say if you can't do it in the same place to just not do it because the to a high degree, I feel like the act itself is what is the most important. But the frosting on the cake is being able to do it in the same spot repeatedly. Absolutely. How's that continued connection? And it makes it stronger um, energy wise and luck wise, too. And also another important thing to bring up when we're talking about sacred spaces that you build is uh, the people you allow in your circle. It's very important that you people uh, that are noble people of good virtue uh, that aren't going to bring bad luck upon you. Because during the bloat, it is a communion between the folk in that circle with the gods. And if there's somebody there that will piss off the gods, for lack of a better way of saying it, or somebody there that will break oaths or do something that causes harm to the community, the circle that you're in, your luck is tied with them. So here in the Pacific Northwest Wolfpack, we are very, very focused on making sure that people are vetted, that are people of good moral character. Uh, we're very careful of the people we let get in that ritual circle with us. I know that I have felt the ill effects where there was somebody that was not of good, good repute and them doing things and breaking oaths. And I feel like I was affected by that in person in, in like life things that happened to me because of this person breaking an oath so i think there's many of us that have similar experiences over time yeah you said that and i you just have anything think that, to add to that well i mean not not directly and i don't want to get into too much specifics on here but like as soon as you said that i thought about that one bloat i was at where the tree branch uh snapped off and fell down right in front of the person uh conducting the bloat remember i told you about that yeah this goes to another point that's also a very important mechanic of the bloat is divination or reading the signs from the gods so and there's many ways to do it uh you could do it with runes you can do it with augury um but reading omens that happen for example at our may uh poll ceremony that we did uh as we're weaving the maypole together there is a spider that's in the weave with it and the spider is in there weaving its strand 
with our strands. That was an amazing omen to see. That was an omen from the gods. And being able to read these signs and these peculiar things that happen um, is an important part of ritual as well, because that's how we receive our messages from the gods in return for our gifts, whether or not we know they've been accepted by them or not. Some people would call that superstitious, though. What would you say to that, Anthony? Uh, I'd say it's superstitious and it's pagan. It's heathen. Like that's we have an integrated integrated worldview of the physical and the spiritual. So yes, we we read these things and they mean something. It's just some heathen shit, huh? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. It's, so what I would say, I mean, you had a perfect answer there, but what I would say to add to that is um Many people out there pull runes. Many people out there have dreams. Many people have different intuitions and things like that. And here's the thing. Why engage in divinatory practices if you don't believe in fate? Because without fate, without Erlog, you know, there is no divination. None. It doesn't exist. It's made up. So you can either be in the camp of the side that doesn't believe in any of that, which is not what our ancestors have told us and explained to us and what I've personally experienced in my own life. Uh, or you can be in the camp that understands that there's a congruence with the entire universe in the way that these beings and forces interact in the way the weird, as they call it, is weaved. Yeah. Like the the... The first way I heard it that really resonated with me was the future is as solid as a rock, but as fluid as the ocean. And I personally don't take that to mean that we're able to, you know, change any aspect of our future. Uh, I mean, I, th I personally, I think to a certain extent, we the choices we make can lead us to. uh one of a f one of two or three uh, next step potentials, but I think at the end of the day, we we walk through, we walk out how we're supposed to. Um, with the ocean metaphor, though, I I really look at it as you might see certain parts, but you're never going to see the total the totality of it. Like what you see on top is less than one percent of what is completely going on yeah <laughs> less than less than less than one percent for sure yeah so moving on uh after the sanctifying halloween of the sacred space that you're going to perform this ritual in uh and as i mentioned there's other aspects to all of this but um the next important part to do is the calling of the god or the gods or the goddesses um, and asking them to hear you so we, we have the hallowing of the sacred space and then the calling of the god or goddesses and asking them to hear you these are all mandatory aspects of the mechanical aspects of bloat when you're performing it after calling upon the god and asking them to hear you you then do your bidya and your bidya is your ask um it's an old ancient germanic tradition that we believed in a gift for a gift this comes from the gods themselves odin himself tells us in the havamal 
To a friend, a person should be a friend. Return a gift for a gift. You see this in the rune Gabo, the concept of exchange. If something is given, something must be received. So like using the example like, I loan you $20. You know, when you come back and try to give me a gift in return, I have to accept it to allow that complete exchange of energy, you know, or if you give me, if you give me $20, I am required to give you something in return to keep that flow of exchange going. Yeah, absolutely. And how the mall of, Odin tells us, you, you know, do you know how to bloat? And then he explains to us, don't bloat too much. You know, don't offer too much. And then he says, you know, at the same time, don't ask too much. So he's essentially telling us to make an even exchange for the ask. So with our pe people, there's there's always a give and an ask. Every time you give, you're looking for an exchange of energy. That's just the way of our folk. It, it's our tradition so that's what we're doing after we ask the gods to hear us is we're performing the bidya we're giving the ask to the gods and what we're asking them depends upon the bloat that we're performing in which god it's to in which season it is in which part of the cycle that we're entering into um but the formula stays the same with little variance uh, between the nine bloats throughout the year. After the bidya is the blotya. So that's the giving of the offering to the gods. Kind of already went over how the offerings should be, you know, very specific things for very specific gods. So won't go over that again. So after the offering is given, then is the divination part of it. The reading of by the Gothi or the Bloth Mother of whether or not the offering has been accepted by the gods. And this divination can happen, as I mentioned, either by the pulling of runes in the reading thereof. It could happen by augury. It could happen by reading signs of things around you. Maybe the sign will stick out like the breaking of the tree when you were in that bloat. I mean, when you saw that tree break, you automatically knew that meant something. Huh. Yeah. I wasn't entirely sure what it meant, but I knew it meant I knew it meant something. It's a bad omen. Yeah. Anytime a tree broke, it was always a bad omen. And it's important that we read these signs um, because these are the this is the gods speaking to us. So the divination part of it, one of the things that I do in some of my bloats is uh, we will actually pull runes that are read during the process. And we have the blow bowl and uh, the runes are scraped into the blow bowl. I've mentioned this in previous episodes as well. And, and this is done to scrape that fate in the reading if it was accepted into the blessing of the folk the sprinkling of the folk with the sacred alu mead that we have there and so that is sealing the fate and the protection of everyone in that circle i've been in other rituals where we have seen 
for example, certain birds fly overhead right after an offering is given. And there was an instance where an eagle flew right overhead and it had a snake that it was holding. And this is happening right just moments after the offering is given. And using augury, divination methods, uh, and, and seeing what nature itself is telling us, the signs and symbols that the gods present to us through, through nature itself, uh, we can presume that that offering was being accepted by the gods, by Odin. Do you have anything to add to any of that? Nothing of value. What do you think the last part of the bloat mechanically is? The last mechanical thing you should do after all of that is over? Closing the bloat? Like acknowledging that yeah. the, the, the offering has been received and the rite is ended and opening the and opening the area back up so those are the the mechanical aspects of a bloat and there's there's more to it you know what you have on your altar the uh, bloat tools that you use those are all, all really important um, and we can go over those some other time in a different episode um, but understanding you know those different aspects of bloat that should be performed in that specific sequence is the first step to understanding how to perform a, a bloat in a way that will connect you with the gods. Now, what about impersonal ritual, um, you may ask? I think that personal ritual, things that you do privately, um, can take various forms and patterns. Um, but generally, that mechanical aspect of doing those rites should contain at least parts of those you know whether you're calling on a ancestor so you should still call their name and you should ask them to listen to you and then tell them what's going on and how you need their help and give them an offering and in exchange maybe they'll come to you in a dream and speak to you Maybe something that will happen will trigger uh, an understanding of of what you asked for or what you need. There's lots of different ways that the gods and our ancestors and the Alf speak to us. We just have to listen. But, but the mechanical aspects of doing these acts is very similar. Yeah, on a uh, I would just say on a personal basis, the aesthetics can be different more detailed less detailed you know whatever works best for you personally uh but the mechanical skeleton of it is going to be the same man we've uh we talked about a lot actually <laughs> yeah we went over a lot on this actually yeah so to summarize we perform bloat to restore that connection and balance to the gods. And we do this in a way that's traditional to our folk because we are attaching ourselves to a very powerful connection that our ancestors have done for thousands and thousands of years. 
and we're tying into that cosmological process to protect our luck, to protect our fates, to protect our descendants, and to also connect us with each other in doing these rites together. What would you would say, uh, add to any of this bloat stuff? Well, there's a part of me that wants to crack crack a joke about not being proto-Germanic anymore. <laughs> yeah. Well, but James, you know, we're in 2022. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. It's because they, you know, certain individuals or groups or whatever they are, are always like, we're in 2022. We're not, you know, living during the Viking age or whatever age period. And then neither am I, you know, but I'm practicing and connecting to the gods the same way that my ancestors did. That that doesn't change. You know, I still live a life. I still uh, work and have kids and family and go to football games and drive cars. I mean, what exactly are we trying to change here? But, you know, it's just like we were saying, anybody that's looking to change tradition uh, from how we do it, we should always question that. And in most instances, steer clear of it. Uh, even if you have to practice these things, you know, the traditional way in your homes by yourself, you know, uh, that's more powerful. Um, that's more powerful than being in a community. Um, the community is still important. And most of the time when you encounter things where people are changing like tradition, it's usually on an organizational level. So I never ever like blame the members, the the general lay of the membership of any type of organization that does that thing, you know? Um, yeah. I would just say that they're misinformed or maybe they don't understand something if they don't question it, um, which is very common today because people are coming to this faith and they're just looking for answers. And unfortunately, there's a lot of misinformation out there. But uh, I, I will tell you this. Our ancestors didn't go to churches. Our ancestors didn't wear Jewish shawls. And, you know, especially when they perform the rites to their gods, they definitely uh, didn't change the things that the gods taught them. Uh, specifically, the, the, the faith that Rig taught us to help us build our communities. So with that said, I will, I will say that networking no matter what the individual is into, um, you should never hate or dislike. People can disagree on things. Um, and you should still continue to network and still continue to grow and expose people to more information. Uh, if you have people that try to limit your information on what you can hear or read or see or be a part of, question that. It's usually a, like a cult of personality. You know, somebody that's more infer, uh, more interested in their own fame than for the benefit of the folk and whole. More interested in being right than doing right. Yeah, absolutely. So I hope in this episode we have given everybody uh, some good 
information uh, on how to perform below, why it's important, um, how it's done mechanically. Uh, in, in future episodes, I do want into more specifics and different details. Uh, those in the Pacific Northwest uh, region, um, if you're interested in learning uh, how to do these things, uh, most likely you know how to contact me and connect with me. Uh, we can certainly do that, arrange some time, maybe put a workshop together over these things. Um, but I hope everybody out there listening that I don't know and won't connect with uh, that you find value in this information uh, and it helps you deepen your connection with our gods and our folk. So say it the high one. It is better to ask for too little than offer too much. Like the gift should be the boon. Know how to stain them and know how to wield them. Know how to ask them and know how to bloody them. Know how to send the offerings and know how to sacrifice them. All right, everybody, this has been the Sacred Stew. I am Anthony. My co-host is James. Y'all have a good night.